Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Chris Irons, host of the Quoth the Raven podcast and author of QTR's Fringe Finance Substack. Welcome back, Chris. How are you? Tom, I am so happy to be back. I am uh, I'm thrilled, actually. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm excellent. It's uh, <clears throat> We're kind of chatting a little bit before we started here. Both ring in the new year, fresh, fresh slate. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully you don't necessarily need to change a whole bunch in your life, um, to, to be able to look forward to the new year. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always great to, to have you back and to chat because, you know, you look at a lot of stuff outside, let's say necessarily the, the particular gold space. Um, you know, you've, you've looked at China quite a bit. Um, you, you have quite a bit of experience that, um, I don't necessarily get to be exposed to on a, on a daily basis. So it's good to be able to um, have a chat with you and and also read your blog from time to time, because it, um, it really helps bring some, some new ideas, um, other, let's say risk areas into, into my thinking for sure. So, you know, maybe, maybe we can kind of start there. Why do you think that 2022 was maybe a, a prelude for volatility in the markets? Well, I don't look, uh, what I think is that 2022, um, we saw a lot of volatility, but not as much as we're going to see in 2023. And by volatility, I don't necessarily mean that the market is going to crash all year long. Um, but what I do mean is that I think in 2023, we're going to see the, uh, we're going to see capitulation. We're going to see fear and panic in the markets at some point. I think it's a mathematical certainty just based on the fact that interest rates uh, are now at 4%. Neil Kashkari said this morning that, you know, he thinks rates should go to 5.4% before the year is over, which is hilarious because just last year he was predicting 1% rates for this year. So he is gone. Okay. He's on Jupiter. He's on Mars. But regardless, uh, the point is, like some of these other Fed governors, he's talking about a finding the neutral rate at, you know, five and a half percent. And as everybody knows, the economy and the market respond to higher interest rates with a lag. And so we raised rates as aggressively and quickly over 2022, almost as we ever have at any point in recent history. Certainly leading up to 2018, when the market uh, crashed during the holidays in 2018, you know, we had been moving in 25 basis point increments for, I think, two or three years at that point. Um, What we did in 2022 is we went from zero to 400 basis points, uh, you know, in 12 months. And all that means is we're going to get probably an even more pronounced response from the markets, but because all of that happened in such a shorter period of time, uh, it's going to take, you know, we're still kind of waiting for the market to respond. It hasn't had two years. It hasn't had three years, but you're starting to see it in the macro data this morning, you know, new mortgage applications down 13% this morning versus I think one or 2% in the year prior. We're going to start to see it. Tom, you know, the ISM numbers are coming in uh, under expectations. All the every macro data point that you could 
look for has come in uh, indicating that the economy is starting to grind to a halt. Um, it'll show up in earnings. It has already started to show up in earnings. It has showed up in massive company layoffs, which we saw, you know, getting started in 2022. When I woke up this morning, you know, I always read all the news headlines every morning. I think like four of the first news headlines I read this morning, Salesforce and like two or three other companies all cutting their staff by 10%, cutting their staff by 5%. And so that will continue into the new year. Um, and as those things will continue, the market and the economy um, are going to catch up. The, you know, the economic data is going to get worse and the market is going to throw a shit fit at some point. I mean, a real shit fit. I've been way ahead of this because, you know, look, I started writing in November 2021 about the Nasdaq potentially crashing. That was before inflation was on the map and it was before Russia invading Ukraine was on the map. And my thesis was basically, look, you know, the market was at hyper elevated points prior to COVID. Then we introduced all this hot money into the system. Then all of a sudden weaponized gamma became a thing, right? Where SoftBank, Goldman Sachs, all these companies, if you can read in the Financial Times, did some great coverage on it, that these companies were basically utilizing options to move the tech indices, which is why you saw the NASDAQ basically double off its post-pandemic lows in March of 2022. For an index, that is a perverse move. That is a stunning move for an index. Um, you know, it's an insane move for a blue chip company by itself. But for an index, it's it's it has to be a six or seven sigma outlier. I don't know what it is, but it's ridiculous. And my point in November 2021 was, look, prior to the pandemic, we were already saying that everything was overpriced. Well, what happens when you take overpriced and on top of it, you layer basically a, what I thought and still think was a completely artificial burst higher, euphoric kind of, you know, bubble burst higher, overdrive, afterburners, you know, overclocking uh, essentially of the market. Um, and that is what I think we saw from March 2020 to like the end of 2021. Now you have you have a couple of things all converging at once, right? Uh, the hot money spigot has been turned off and rates are rising. Personal savings are drying up. Consumer credit is rising to record levels. And what does that mean? It means that not only are people gonna be feeling the crunch of all of the pornographic amount of debt that is outstanding now, and not only is the cost of carrying that debt gonna rise, but on top of that, don't forget, we have to give back all of that artificial move higher, which I think is what we're seeing in Tesla right now. We can talk about that in a second. We have to give back all of that artificial move higher that I believe was basically uh, caused a lot by weaponized options, weaponized gamma. Um, and then we have to, you know, we give that back. And then where are we, Tom? We're at the ridiculous nosebleed levels we were prior to the pandemic. I mean, people forget 2018, 2017, 2019, you had Yellen saying assets were overvalued. You had Carl Icahn putting out videos saying that the market was overvalued. I mean, it was widely accepted that the market was extremely overvalued in 2017, 2018, 2019, right? Then on top of that, 
on top of that is when we, you know, kind of blew this bubble that much bigger thanks to all the COVID stimulus. So you wrote back in all the COVID stimulus, then you're back at where we were prior to COVID, which was extremely overvalued. Then you got to take extremely overvalued and you need to head back somewhere towards your recessionary means, uh, as in averages, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, your market cap to GDP averages, your your S&P earnings ratio averages. Um, and I know this doesn't necessarily account for all of the new money in the system, but the point is, from this point going forward, there's a really strong case, especially obviously now with the macro environment with rates where they are, that the market still needs to come in another, you know, maybe 40% from here, I think, before we can even start talking about a bottom. On top of that, sorry, and, and I hate to be long-winded, but on top of that, on top of the fact that you had a euphoric bubble on top of an already overvalued market, now heading into a year where rates are at a ridiculous amount, you know, 4% heading to 5% maybe, on top of that, you have all of this geopolitical and global economic risk that was nowhere to be seen prior to Russia invading Ukraine. So we are at the beginning of, in my opinion, a brand new epoch for the global economy in general. And, you know, as Larry Lepard said on some podcast I was listening to today when I was running, you know, trends are trends for a reason because everybody moves in the same direction and everything, but trends do eventually end. And I think that we're heading to the end of a major decades long trend in markets as we roll into 2023 here. Well, yeah, you know, you, you recently wrote, um, in kind of a a summary of 2022, this, this tweet thread that it's been something like almost 15 years since we've really had interest rates this high. Um, and, and you and I have talked about the, the idea of lag of these rate hikes having their full effect, um, what that means for the balance sheets of companies going forward, um, but you know that the other part of this that I wanted to kind of touch on a little bit more um, was kind of summarized in one of your your articles called Tapped Out, where you talk about how this is really affecting Main Street or the average consumer. You know, you you investigated a little bit about how the hikes have affected people's personal balance sheets, how it's affected their their mortgage rates, um, all of those types of things. So, do you think that the the average person is very close to being, as, as you said, tapped out. Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I feel like the average individual that has relied on, you know, look, he, here was the narrative coming out of COVID, right? Personal savings were up. Why were personal savings up? Because people were out generating more productivity? No, because people were sitting at home collecting more in unemployment than they had ever had in the past. And the government was doling out PPP loans to anybody and everybody, including people like Ross Gerber, who took PPP loans. What does that mean? It means that anybody could get a PPP loan for anything. That's what it means. So the government, which, you know, and again, this is another mind boggling exercise in government efficiency that we could dedicate an entire podcast to, but we won't. What does the government do? Okay, it takes uh, you know a couple trillion dollars. All right, Tom, and it and it sprays it at the country. All right, like a guy holding a, a fire hose, just 
any any amount of money in any direction with no accountability. They nailed some people for fraud, sure, but the amount of waste and abuse and you know wrongdoing and corruption that occurred with this money uh, is off the charts. Okay, off the charts. And when you think about things like that, that's what makes it difficult to understand the thinking and you know tracking people's six hundred dollar Venmo transactions. But again, another discussion for another day. Mm-hmm. All of that money took the personal savings rate. And if you pull up a chart of the personal savings rate in the country um, or whatever the hell it's called, the, uh, the personal uh, the average, uh, average household savings, mm-hmm. uh, you can pull it up on Fred. You know, you see there's this enormous spike, okay, when all of that happened. All of that has been drawn back down, okay? Those savings have been spent and then some. So the, the savings are now underneath where they were prior to the pandemic. And on top of that, what happens when you run out of savings? What do you do next? Well, you go and you start taking out credit cards, right? You take personal unsecured loans, you take home equity loans, you take you take on debt, right? Once you run through your savings, the only place to go is to debt, right? And so what have we seen? Not only have we seen the personal savings get drawn down, but we've seen, you know, consumer debt levels spike to like recent record levels. So what does that mean? It means that we are running on very, very, very thin ice in terms of, you know, liquidity as a country. And as rates continue to rise, all right, because remember, rates are still rising. The effects of rates rising don't take place right away. They take place you know, in the months or in the quarters after they rise. Every time rates tick higher, everybody's debt gets a little bit more expensive, which essentially just means that everybody has a little bit less discretionary income. The cost of the mortgage goes up what? You know, maybe it goes up $75 for a household. Well, you multiply that by, you know, 100 million households, and all of a sudden you're talking about a material sum of money. Those numbers are still in the process of going up because all that stuff operates on a lag. Those costs are still getting more expensive. And if super genius Neil Kashkari has his way, has his way, those numbers will continue to rise well into 2023. As that happens, discretionary income, income that is used to you know, buy products or services or income perhaps that people were saving or putting away or trying to put in their 401k or put into their brokerage accounts, all of that contracts. So what does that mean? It means that money comes out of the market, which sucks and you know will ultimately uh, feed on itself when markets start to move lower. But it also means that um, as spending goes down, you know all of these companies, you basic household consumer staples, anybody that sells anything, you know, business is going to decline. Business will start to decline and earnings will start to contract, you know, and what happens when earnings contracts? Well, <laughs> then the price you're paying for stock winds up getting more expensive. And so stocks re-rate. And what happens when stocks move lower? Well, then people get margin calls and they're forced to liquidate or they notice the value of their 401k, you know, going down instead of going up and people start to cash out. So it becomes this pretty gnarly cycle, you know, basically a basic econ 101 like deleveraging cycle uh, that takes place. 
Um, and so my argument is heading into 2023, we're not even in the thick of that yet. You know, that that flywheel is just barely starting to spin up here. And, uh, and shit's going to get real this year. The other thing to consider is when that starts to happen. So here's what everybody will say, right? Everybody's going to say, <clears throat> when we have our first limit down day or, you know, limit down two days or the market drops 15% in a week, because I agree with Lepard, right? The Fed has this third mandate, which is essentially financial market stability that mm -hmm. nobody talks about. So what would prompt the Fed to act? Well, if the S&P took a 15% shit in, you know, in 48 hours, that might start to turn some heads. That's, you know, it certainly get the lobotomized automatons in Congress who know little about anything and even less about finance to start to bitch moan and complain to Jerome Powell that he's doing his job wrong and start to create pressure on the Fed. Um, you know, I'll never forget 2018. Steve Mnuchin called the banks. That's what he did. He called the banks after the market crashed as if that meant anything at all, you know, and, and dutifully reported back that, you know, I just got off the phone with Jamie Morgan, not Jamie Morgan, with, with Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan, <laughs> Who tells me, you know, the banks have ample liquidity? It's like, okay, you know, like, what does that have to do with anything? You know, stocks are down 10% over two or three days. Like, what, like, it just, it just will cause panic. That panic will beget other panic. And then we'll see some real stupid shit. You know, this is when you see like financial news anchors like crying on the air and all that kind of fun stuff um, that I personally can't wait for, but other people are horrified by. Um, <laughs> so, the point of the matter is that people think that the Fed will come in and immediately uh, make policy changes, and, and they probably will, right? I don't know if it'll start with saying we're not going to raise anymore. At some point, they'll take more of a dovish stance. Um, I don't know if they'll cut right away. I don't know what they're going to do, but the point is it doesn't matter, right? So my point is heading into 2023 in another article that I wrote. On my blog, it's called Why Timing the Fed is Not Timing the Market, is just a reminder that even after the Fed acts, right, because I do think we are going to see limit down days in 2023, and I don't think it's going to take very long. So, you know, I've been saying it for a year, but it really is starting to feel like zero hour is upon us. And I said all of this stuff happens with the lag. What I think will happen is then the Fed will act, and I think there will be a misunderstanding by the market that everything is fine once the fed acts mm -hmm. um but that doesn't mean anything because the same these policies first off they've they've overshot the mark which they don't even understand and they won't understand until the economy implodes onto itself like a dying star you know stay tuned in 2023 it'll happen in addition to that you know making another policy move is just it will operate on a six-month lag it'll operate on a 12-month lag Jim Chanos tweeted out a couple weeks ago, you know, hey, just a reminder that, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed like a year after the Fed pivoted, right? So yeah, that was actually something I wanted to go over with you is like, is is looking at those examples, do you think, um, do you think they're important or, or instructive? It is important because... It is important because people will need to understand that just because the Fed is pausing or cutting, you know, that doesn't mean that everything is okay. It doesn't mean that the path is clear. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it's green lights all the way through. Um, and I just think that that's 
I think it's important to remember that timing the Fed and timing the market are two completely different things. We're really we we are in a we are in a much more precarious spot than we think we are mm-hmm. right now. Do you- we we don't know and we won't know until we wake up one morning and it bludgeons us in the face, not unlike COVID did, not unlike past market crashes did. I mean, Tom, we knew each other back then when when COVID first started, you know, January, February, 2020, all I was saying is markets are going to crash. This is terrible. This will come to the United States. You'll see this is a global problem. Nobody wanted to hear it. The market went up every fucking day. The market went up. I did a podcast called Pandemic and pandemics and other things that make the market go up, right? Which is like a snarky way of saying like, hey, we're on the verge of a pandemic, buy stocks, right? Because that's what every asshole was doing. Well, what happened? You know, February came and went, March came and went, and then all of a sudden, fucking we woke up one day and everybody's head was sewn to the fucking carpet, right? Because everybody realized, hey, we're on the verge of a pandemic. And why didn't anybody tell us about this? It's like, motherfuckers, open your eyes, right? So it's the same situation now. Right. I know what I'm looking at. You know what we're looking at. Your listeners know what we're looking at. Your listeners understand that thirty one trillion dollars in debt times four percent interest rates equals a fucking disaster. Right. You don't need to. I don't need to run the calculations for you. I don't need a graphing calculator. I don't need a spreadsheet. I don't need to even understand anything about how the system works. I just need those two big numbers to give you a bird's eye view that this just isn't going to work. It's, you know, square peg, round hole, smashing them together, not happening, right? Very, very, very simple bird's mm-hmm. eye, 30,000 foot view of things. Something's going to break. Where, when, how, I don't know. You know, it was like with Celsius, you know? I mean, we talked about that before that happened, right? What did I say to you? I said, look, you know, they're offering 15% yield on their product. I don't understand the inner workings of any of this except for the fact that it just doesn't make sense, right? Alex Mashinsky went on Kitco with Peter Schiff and fucking ridiculed him, told him he didn't understand things. Three months later, he was filing for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I expect the United States government to do somewhat the same. Well, Chris, there's there's two things I want to kind of pick up there. Like, I'd like to get to the crypto thing um, maybe in a little bit, but, you know, when when we see the Fed come to the, you know, try to stem whatever they end up reacting to, let's say. Um, do you think they've kind of trained investors from that March 2020 um, area once they started to cut rates and they, you know, investors saw the market just spike right back up. They saw that bottom as a buying opportunity. Do you think they've trained investors to come back in and really expect that type of reaction from the market when they do make a pivot. Uh, can, can you just repeat that? I'm not really sure. First off, you cut off for the first half of that. And second off, I'm not really sure what you're asking. Okay, not a problem. Uh, Chris, that, that's something I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on a little bit more is how, if you think that the Fed has really trained investors to you know, jump back into the market as soon as, um, as soon as they come back to the rescue, as soon as they pivot, you know, when in, in March of 2020, we saw the markets crash as, as you and I were discussing. And then all of a sudden we saw this, you know, insane rebound. And this seems to me like 
you know, the perfect opportunity for people that maybe miss that. And they're, they're salivating on the sidelines, waiting for the next time that that happens. Do you think that they've really trained investors to jump back in with both feet and everything they can? Um, well, it's a little at, bit of a, a different time. situation, mm-hmm. you know, because rates were at zero then and our rates were at, you know, I, I forget what rates were at in March of 2020, but like one, maybe mm-hmm. one and a half percent, 175 basis points, you know, and then, and then we cut to zero. Um, you know, look, the, the point is, if the, if the Fed came out tomorrow and said they were going to do $10 trillion in open-ended QE and they were going to slash nominal rates to negative 1%, there's no doubt that the stock market would go much higher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the point is, it's just not necessarily going to happen right away because you have all this detritus that needs to fucking work its way out of the, the plumbing of the system, right? First, so mm-hmm. you got to kind of like, uh, you got to kind of force all the turds out of the system first before you can allow the, the clean water to come through the plumbing, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, you know, if that happens, me and you will be on a yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean because gold will be at $5,000 an ounce overnight and gold miners will be a 25 X at that point. Um, and you know, who knows what we'll be doing at that point, Tom, you know, maybe we'll invite the listeners. I'm sure that many of your listeners have much higher net worths than I do and have much more invested in gold and silver than I do. Maybe one of them will invite us out and we'll just go party on the Mediterranean for (laughs) a week or two, like the world's ending. Um, look, you know, markets will wind up going higher. Um, but there will be kinks that need to be worked out first. I don't think the Fed is going to do that. Um, there's a huge difference between slashing nominal rates to negative 2%, which the Fed just can't do. They just can't do it. I mean, we, we'd have we'd have 20% inflation. We, we, I mean, we'd be talking about hyperinflationary scenarios at that point. So they don't have the option to do that. What they have the option to do is peel back 5% to 3% rates, right? And that's, you know, first off, Lest we forget current monetary policy when you're talking about real rates, it's still accommodative. Lest we forget that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's still not restrictive when inflation's at 6 or 7% and rates are at 4%. You're still talking about negative 2 or 3% real rates. Um, the Fed doesn't have the option to, to make a major massive cut like that. What they would do is they would maybe do a 150 basis point cut right, would be like their big, that would be the big like bazooka and say, all right, well, we're going to, we're going to start bond. Uh, I I don't even know, you know, it's just a reminder that like, that doesn't mean the problems are solved. And quite frankly, might also trigger a loss of confidence in the Fed. Um, You know, when you start talking about situations like that, or, you know, like yield curve control, if, if the bond market starts to kind of lose its shit, um, you know, you have to have another discussion, which is this loss of confidence in the Fed type discussion that uh, I think it was Luke Groman was talking to you about uh, a couple months back, maybe October, November, I remember listening, mm-hmm. uh, because that, that that's really the next, that's going to be the next big elephant in the room. And, you know, when you look at things from a geopolitical spectrum, it, it, it's clear to me that China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, they all know this already. I mean, <laughs> there's a good reason they're stockpiling gold and, and doing their best to try to create a 
monetary system outside of the one being used by the West. And a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, their loss of confidence, probably uh, in our central banking system. Mm-hmm. Um, when we wake up to realize that, you know, the same loss of confidence that they've kind of already figured out, well, then it's panic time, you know, then it's like Katie barred the door kind of time for, for sound money and just for general lunacy and austerity. And, you know, that's, that's, I don't know, that's the situation where you, where you talk about, you know, people that hoard gold and guns. Uh, I don't know if it happens, but I certainly know that it feels like now it's more of a possibility than it ever has been. Let me just tell you something, Tom, when, you know, when the Fed came in and they implemented QE in March of 2020, QE infinity, one of the things that I said was I'm getting long some stuff, right? Just as the market was crashing, the day that Bill Ackman was on national television crying about how the markets were crashing and COVID was going to devastate the world, uh, was right about the time I did a Periscope called being a contrarian in the time of a pandemic or something like that. And I said, you know, look, I'm going to start looking at financials here because this isn't a financial crisis. Um, You know, basically because I still had confidence, a a degree of confidence in the Fed saying, all right, you know, the Goldman Sachs is okay here at, you know, uh, 0.5 X book, which is cheap for a bank. This is not a systemic financial crisis. This is going to be an earnings crisis. It's going to be, you know, a different kind of crisis. And so I started saying, this is the time to look at the blue chips, the names that, you know, maybe if you wanted to be a long-term investor, uh, this would be the time to look at those names. So the point of saying that is to just kind of set the stage that I'm capable of playing within the system too, right? And that was one thing I had to learn. When I first discovered the entire central banking model was a Ponzi scheme, I was like, okay, short everything always. Then you kind of learn the hard lesson of don't fight the Fed, which mm-hmm. as much as much as you hate it, because what they're doing is morally repugnant, as much as you hate it, it, it makes you money, right? There's, one of my friends said to me years ago, you know, bears sound smart, bulls make money. And it's so dumb. It's such a stupid saying, but it registered with me. And it makes sense. You know, they're like, yeah, you do sound smart because you got it figured out. But are you smart enough to play the game within the confines of the game so that you can make money? Right. Because if you're if you're long gold because, you know, the system is fucked, but gold is going to go down 50 percent over the course of a year, you're down 50 percent regardless of how right you are on macro. So look, that's setting the stage for for the idea that I I don't have any problem playing within the confines of the game. Uh, It doesn't doesn't bother me to change my mind. It doesn't bother me to have a grasp on things and, you know, try to use that grasp to, to make money. However, with that being said, now I feel like we're on the cusp of something that could usurp that entire system. Uh, could usurp all of the rules of the game from March, 2020. And that's when you start talking about a loss of confidence in the Fed. Mm-hmm. That's when you start talking about a loss of confidence in the central banking model, in fiat, in the US dollar as reserve currency. And what are we seeing now 
We're seeing all these things that we've never seen before. I mean, we've never seen, you know, the U.S. just grab somebody's reserves and basically just steal them like we did with Russia's, right? What signal does that send to the world? It sends a signal that like, hey, we could just take your shit whenever we want, mm -hmm. right? So even Germany, even our allies, right? What did, what do they think when they see something like that? Well, they think, wow, you know, if we piss off the U.S., you know, who knows what recourse they have? And so it gets the rest of the world thinking. And along those lines comes the idea of like, well, you know, how does the U.S. actually sustain its quality of life despite carrying all of this debt and, you know, managing all these trade deficits? It doesn't really make sense. Oh, okay, well, that begets the question of like, all right, you know, well, like, what gives the dollar its reserve currency status? And it's like, okay, well, the petrodollar. And then, you know, it's like, all right, well, who, who are the Saudis allied with? You know, are they allied with Russia and China? Are they allied more with the U.S. now? And, and all of a sudden, all these wheels start to turn. And, you know, Russia basically laughed at the sanctions that we put on them. I mean, they endured some pain, but they said, all right, we'll just stick it out. Like, we have the oil. You know, China has the productive capacity and all of a sudden now they're paired together. China's going to invest in, you know, Russian oil assets strategically. Russia's going to help China. And I'm sure China is one way or another helping Russia militarily as well as we, you know, help Ukraine. Um, so the world is bifurcating right in front of us, you know, and they've made no secret. The BRICS nations have made no secret about the fact that they want to create their own reserve currency. They've said so much. It's, you know, there's public headlines about it. I've written about it. So what do you have? Well, you have kind of this unprecedented moment where the U.S., in arguably its most precarious financial position ever in, in the country's history, with the amount of debt that we have, the amount of inflation that we're facing, the lack of productive capacity, the trade deficits that we have, this, you know, uh, just funneling money out of the country to Ukraine, the government spending, which is just off the charts. It's, it's almost inconceivable how careless we are with our spending. We have completely lost our compass financially this country completely you know it, it i i don't i don't it it's it's stunning it's breathtaking really is what it is you know we you know i don't even know what hope there is if we were to cut government spending tomorrow and start to try to you know rein some of this in we have completely lost the econ 101 you know compass of what a position of strength is financially, right? Mm -hmm. is, is a position of strength having a strong balance sheet and, you know, positive cash flow if you're a company? Yes. Well, it's the same if you're a country, right? You want a strong balance sheet and you want positive cash flow, right? Which means you want to bring in more in, you know, tax receipts than you do uh, doling out from spending or, or more from trade than you do doling out from trade, right? And we... We're in the worst situation. We, we have the worst balance now, arguably, than, than we've ever had. And, you know, I was listening to Larry Lepardo. I was running today on some other podcasts. 
you know, talking about Fort Dix and whether or not the gold is at Fort Dix. And I'm just running and I'm just thinking like, of course the fucking gold isn't there. You know why? Because if there's a string, Tom, these motherfuckers are going to pull it. They're going to pull that string before they do the responsible thing 999 times out of a thousand. And I guarantee you, and I think Larry's right. He said, you know, this probably happened sometime before we got off the gold standard that somebody just said, well, you know, we got all this gold here. Might as well sell some to pay for whatever, whatever bullshit government program we were working on at the time. Something that I'm sure is completely defunct that, you know, somebody has retired off of. Um, But I'm sure we have. I'm sure we don't have the gold reserves that we claim we do, you know, because the whole rest of our economy is a house of cards. Why wouldn't that be? And so if you're the West, I mean, uh, if you're the BRICS nations and you're looking at the United States now, what must you be thinking? Mm-hmm. What, what must you be thinking when you watch Joe Biden, you know, hand over a hundred billion dollars over the course of the year to Ukraine and then, you know, abscond with another country's financial reserves you know, operating from a position of a deficit with a insolvent balance sheet, you know, and, and, and your friends, the Saudis are, are really what they're, they're the one thing that's holding up the dollars reserve currency status, you know, the, the, the petrodollar, is that it? Because, you know, the Saudis are, you know, they're, they are, entering into security agreements with Russia and China. You know, the whole point was we were going to provide them with security and that's why they were going to transact in dollars. So what's happening now? They're entering into security agreements with these other nations. And meanwhile, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, they're not doing business exclusively in U.S. dollars anymore. They're buying and selling oil in rubles and in yuan. So what does that mean for the dollar's reserve currency status? What what is their backing that? What our our, our nuclear arsenal? Well, what good is that? You know? Yeah, this what seems like a, a a slow slide that is just going to, you know, kind of pile up and pile up and pile up, and then, like you say, all of a sudden we're gonna we're gonna wake up one day and realize that everything has changed. Yeah. Yep. And and you know. So people ask me my outlook on on 2023, you know, can the S&P move up 10%? It's like, fuck, Tom, who cares? Yeah, yeah, we we have bigger problems than that. Yeah, not to be an asshole, but like, you know, if it does move up 10%, well, what will happen? You know, you'll have uh, guys like Tom Lee go on CNBC and pat himself on the back for meeting his year-end S&P target. Everybody will, you know, feel a little bit better on the golf course while they're looking at their 401k balance on their phone. Um, But then we got to deal with 2024 and then 2025 and then 2026. And there's much bigger forces at play here than whether or not the S&P is going to return 10% or not this year. And that is all an aside to the fact that I'd like to mention Tom Lee's year-end target for 2022 was something like 5,100 on the S&P, okay, which means uh, 
he got it wrong by almost a factor of 40%, <laughs> which is just stunning because we're talking about indices again. We're not talking about penny stocks on the over-the-counter markets. We're, we're talking about stock indices. Mm-hmm. So to be wrong by 40% is stunning. And I know everybody knows this, but I'm just going to say it anyways, that the fact that they continue to have somebody on that network and on all these networks that has been this wrong and has been unable to see what's going on, very similar to Kathy Wood, very similar to Ross Gerber. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about Tesla in a second. You know, the fact that these people continue to be brought on and hailed as heroes, you know, the, the purpose is to see the big picture. If you want to master the game theory of markets, you have to zoom way out. You have to be able to look at everything from, you know, the stratosphere, and then you have to look at everything through a microscope too. And you have to understand how all those different perspectives interact with each other. You know, you can't ride the, uh, you can't ride like the most euphoric stock bubble in history uh, and just continue to predict what really anybody could have predicted, which is that stocks will go up and label yourself as an investing genius. You know, the, the, let's talk about Tesla real quick. You know, the acumen of these managers becomes, it gets put on full display, Tom, when the playing field changes, right? When rates are at zero and the Fed is doing unlimited QE, it's very easy to be an asset manager. You can buy garbage and it goes up. It's very easy. You don't even need to know how to read financials, right? And I'm still not sure that a person like Ross Gerber does know how to read financials, okay? When somebody like that goes and buys a company like Archimoto, for example, which I looked at the financials of the other day for the first time, I, as far as I can see, that equity is worth $0 tomorrow. I mean, it's just, <laughs> that company is basically bankruptcy waiting to happen, right? And I was looking at their cash burn and stuff. You know, you look at somebody purchasing a company like that, even in the even in the most perversely out of control, insane, euphoric scenarios, there isn't an excuse to buy that because, oh, the play is, oh, it's, it's an EV company, you know? Okay, maybe that would have been nice three, four, five years prior, you know? But like even the EV bubble, was saturated at that point. And it was still a bubble. You know, shit was still going up that shouldn't have been going up. But even then, he was even late on that. The acumen of these individuals gets put on full display when the gravy train underneath it all stops. Because all of the shit, all of the behavioral Pavlovian incentives that these geniuses had over the last 10 years, which essentially was, okay, let me buy the dip. Every time a stock goes down, I'll buy the dip and that's it. And the market will just continue to move higher. You know, we talked about this, me and you, with Kathy Wood and Robinhood, right? IPO'd at like 18 or something, couldn't find a bid at 18, went down after the IPO, went way up on a gamma squeeze. There were a bunch of call options bought. It, it went up on a gamma squeeze to like 38, fell to 30. And Kathy Wood said, I'm buying the dip. And it's like, no, actually, you're buying 2x the IPO price where it didn't have an actual bid to begin with. But she didn't understand the mechanics of what was happening in the market. She didn't understand the fact that that was an artificial price for that company, right? So what did she do? She wrote it down to fucking eight, all right? Congratulations. The acumen of these individuals is on display 
when the gravy train under it all stops. When rates go up and the free money spigot gets turned off, it causes the market to look at equities through a very different lens than it normally would have, a much more conservative lens, a much more risk adverse lens, okay? A, a company like Archimoto, all right, that Mr. Gerber has in his ETF is as good as dead when a shift like that happens. I mean, the equity, in my opinion, that company is worth zero right now on paper as the financial standing, the equity is worth zero for anybody to hold that company really in any kind of environment, but especially in this environment is in my opinion, gross financial negligence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <clears throat> Tesla's a great example of this, right? What happened in December, 2019, heading into 2020 with Tesla, right? All of a sudden, right before the pandemic started, right around the same time I was listening to the World Health Organization do their first press conferences on COVID, which was, I think, December 2019, January 2020. I remember the coffee shop I was at. I was at Backyard Beans in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, where I was living at the time. I would go there every day. I'd work off my laptop. I was listening to the COVID uh, press conferences through my headphones, and I was watching Tesla stock, and I had um, you know, my little news feed going also on my screen. And what I was seeing was large, substantial, massive, out-of-the-money call option buys in Tesla, the likes of which I had never seen before. I pay attention to unusual options activity, I have, you know, forever since I've been trading, since I've been following guys like, you know, Sang Lucci and Open Outcryer for 10 years. So anytime option steam comes in on a name, I pay attention to it. It doesn't matter whether it's Tesla or whether it's Microsoft or whoever. It, it, it makes its way across my feed. And then I always take a look. Oh, is this a biotech? Okay, do they have, they have results coming up? Or is this a company leading into earnings? Because you always want perspective. Hey, mm -hmm. does somebody in the options market know something? So with Tesla, what I saw was extremely unusual out of the money call option bonds. It was 2020, Tom, and the stock, I think, whatever, was at, let's just say it was at 80, right? And then whatever, split adjusted, whatever. Let's, we'll just say it's at 80 and the year is 2020. I saw people going out to 2025 and purchasing, you know, 400, 500, $900 strikes multi-million dollar buys enough for me to just say those are extremely unusual options purchases i've never seen anything like it before and you know not in tesla and i've been watching you know options trading tesla forever and what we saw after that was you see the equity react right because market makers have to you know hedge their positions the people that sell those option contracts have to get along a certain amount of the stock to kind of de-risk and all of a sudden, the stock went from, you know, 80 to 800. Um, and that was that first huge run up in Tesla, where it was just like, oh, my God, you know, and, you know, they posted their first profitable quarter uh, at, the, at the time, you know, a penny or five cents per share or whatever it was. But they really fundamentally, that was immaterial, mm -hmm. that, that amount of money. The, the move was astronomical compared to you know, what had happened in the underlying uh, fundamentals. Now, I wasn't smart enough to catch the move on the way up. Um, what I should have done was gotten long, you know, and like all these imbeciles that really, you know, made millions and millions of dollars, 
um, you know, on the Robinhood accounts, just buying Tesla call options, it fueled uh, basically a flywheel that started on its own, right? It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Other people came in, they bought call, call options, whatever. Before you know it, you had Tesla that's 10x over the course of a year and a half. And because Kathy Wood and Ross Gerber and the likes owned it, uh, they were rolled out on financial media as these incredible gurus. And, you know, look, good for them. They made brands out of it. Kathy Wood made her whole innovation brand out of it. Uh, you know, she's got the vision for innovation, Tom, that the rest of us just don't have, right? That's the problem. <laughs> so that, that's why we need her ARC fund. Meanwhile, I could run a screen for companies with a PE you know, over 500 that, you know, uh, generate, you know, no free cash flow yield and uh, whatever, and just identify, you know, the 100 worst, most overvalued, aggressively valued companies in the NASDAQ and probably go out and buy half of the ARC fund without even, you know, looking at what was in it. But regardless, the stock goes up, these two all of a sudden are geniuses, and we are left with, you know, essentially these two creating their own brands and becoming, I don't know, poster children really for the, uh, for the, for the bubble, the ride up. Well, now all of a sudden that's changed. Right. And so we've seen Tesla was down, I don't know, 50% last year or something like that. Maybe even more 65% last year. Well, the, the, the air is coming out of the bubble, right? What has changed? The gravy train, the aforementioned train has stopped. So once that free money spigot turns off and people's investing attitudes become more risk adverse, people get forced to deleverage like we're talking about, their appetite for risk comes down, then all of a sudden this thing starts working in reverse. And rather than understand that, rather than cash out after this thing 10Xs, right? Because really all you had to do was look at the valuation once it 10X. When Tesla had a trillion dollar valuation, no business, no business doing that. What, what Kathy Wood should have done is said, I got this company that is worth all other auto manufacturers combined times two. I won. I beat the game. Time to cash out and find the next opportunity. But instead, what she did was start making up all this other bullshit. Oh, well, this doesn't count for Tesla mobility. This doesn't count for Tesla's energy. They're an insurance company. They're a solar company. You know, so instead of recognizing it and recognizing that the macro environment was changing and taking some off the table, it became an exercise in how do I continue to justify holding this? Because, you know, I'm, I'm on the record as such a bull for this name that it, maybe it would be devastating for me. Or maybe, you know, she really just believes all this shit. I don't know. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not interested in trying to figure <laughs> it out. The, the point of the matter is that when the macro environment changes, and, and these people's attitudes don't change, okay? That's when you're gonna, that's when you're gonna see real pain. So I was having a discussion yesterday. Well, ARC is at 30 today. It was at 130, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. You know, do you really think it could fall from here? Yeah, I do. I think it could fall another 50% from here. I think it could go to $15 because I think that Tesla can continue to move lower. And I think that a lot of the other components still haven't been roped in the right way. Mark Spiegel put out a note this morning, or I published uh, his investor letter this morning, where he says Tesla could fall another 90%. You know, it's not inconceivable. And it appears like Musk, who is over-leveraging himself and just pretty much going bananas, is doing everything he can to catalyze that. So 
um, a lot of people are going to get a lot of hard lessons um, because the fundamental footing of the market has changed. And that is what is guiding my predictions for extreme volatility in 2023. Not meaning, again, that the market is going to crash all of 2020. We're going we're gonna to go down 95%. That's not what I mean. But I do mean we are going to see some pronounced moved lower. We're going to see a uh, an overshoot of a reaction by the Fed. I'm certain at some point we're going to see the market continue to whipsaw higher, lower. Uh, it's just going to be a wild year because you have all these unknowns, Tom. Right? Not, not only do you have the, the macro unknowns, you have all these geopolitical and and global economic unknowns. Right? What what day is China going to come out and invade Taiwan? Because you know it's going to happen. And then what's our recourse going to be? Are we going to try to do sanctions like we did with Russia? Well, that maybe will work for 30 seconds. China's going to come out and say, by the way, we have 10x the gold than we told anybody else. And we don't think Fort Dix has anything. Can you prove it to us? Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we do then? Well, that's like a shit in your pants moment, right? I mean, that changes things profoundly. Mm -hmm. Any one of these things can happen. Any one of them, you know, God forbid, hopefully the war in Ukraine doesn't get crazier. Hopefully it doesn't turn into World War III. But there's more of a chance today of World War III, Tom, than there's ever been, you know, like in the last 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, mm-hmm. I, maybe going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, I, I don't know. But, uh, man, there's so many things that can go wrong right now. And, and to, to be a bull today, to be a bull today, to say the market's bottom today, you have to be okay with saying, I'm all right with buying the S&P at 20 times earnings right now. Earnings that will be declining in the year coming, right? So maybe that 20 turns into 22 next year, 23 times earnings. You have to be okay saying that. And I'm just not. I think there's way more of a chance that the S&P multiple goes to 12 than it goes to 25. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's my outlook for 2023. Well, Chris, you, you know, you touched on, a little bit of the of the crypto stuff, you know, we saw Celsius blow up last year, Luna, um, obviously FTX will be, let's say, closest um, in, in people's memories. Do you think that that has, has changed people's outlook on crypto, changed people's way they, they think about it as an asset, um, as a trade, um, you know, and, and does that in some ways maybe make Bitcoin more attractive again? I don't really know because my position on crypto has been skeptical since day one. What I will say is that Larry Lepard did a great job, the the best job of anybody in describing it on your last podcast with him in a way that makes me more curious about Bitcoin than I've ever been. There's a lot of unknowns. It's very, 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 very early for Bitcoin, right? It's been around 13 years. You know, how could it, you know, there's just so many unknowns. I think he's right when he says that the risk reward for Bitcoin specifically. So let's talk about crypto in general, right? What did we know about crypto? Well, we knew all of these promises to pay ridiculous yields on crypto were just bullshit. I mean, if people were doing that with US dollars, it would have been massive banking fraud all over and regulations would have stopped it. But because it was crypto, they kind of got away with it. Now, of course, it'll be regulated after these blowups, whatever. Bitcoin is not crypto, right? One thing I'm 
starting to understand that I have started to understand, right? Is that Bitcoin's a protocol, Bitcoin's a network. Okay, so I'm starting to understand that, and, and kind of what I've said all along that, you know, if we do continue to have this crypto winter, which I think will continue in 2023, because I do think there's significant risks still, Grayscale, Binance, you know, could Sailor get carried out of the trade? Who knows? You got uh, the, the, the whole Tether fiasco, the stable coins, you know, Dogecoin still has a billion dollar market cap or whatever. There's a lot of excess in crypto that still needs to come out. And as that comes out, it's going to pressure the price of Bitcoin significantly, you know, no matter what. Having said that, do I think that Bitcoin had to come out of this, the, the, the lone survivor or the lone key survivor? Uh, I do think it will. I, I think it's likely that it will. I think it's likely that Bitcoin will survive. The only question is, what will it be priced at? You know, will it, will it come out at $10 per coin or will it come out at $1,000 per coin? Or, you know, what will the bottom be? You know, I, I can't even try to forecast those things, nor do I really even care. I'm, I'm more kind of focused on understanding, you know, the potential use case for it, which now I understand a little bit better than I did beforehand in the sense that, you know, it isn't tangible, it's digital. You know, Larry made some really good analogs that helped me with talking about how people used to doubt software because, you know, that, that software could be worth anything because it was just code on a computer, making some analogs between Bitcoin and, and the advent of the internet, which of course I had heard before, but didn't really fully understand. I'm still on my way to understanding it. I ordered the Bitcoin standard. I'm going to read it. Um, you know, I'm always going to be a gold first kind of guy or right now, you know, when I talk about Bitcoin, I'm talking about a very negligible uh, amount of money that I would invest money that I'm a hundred percent comfortable with losing a hundred percent of. Um, I do own some Bitcoin. I'm buying it, you know, pretty regularly. That's been the case for a while. Um, so, but I have been a skeptic and I continue to kind of be like a show me uh, first, but I think that the, as I understand it more, the, asymmetry of the risk reward profile makes sense. It's essentially a call option. You know, if guys like Larry are right, it's going to go up a hundred times from where it's at today. And if guys like Larry are wrong and I'm right, it's going to go a hundred percent lower. So I'm okay with that. The same way I buy a call option in a company because, you know, I expect to make multiples of, of whatever I pay for it. And I expect to risk a hundred percent. You know, my risk is defined essentially at a hundred percent. If that's uh, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think that crypto is going to probably be a disaster heading into 2023 because uh, I get the case that it's digital sound money. It makes sense to me. Uh, I, I understand it. I, you know, the argument of whether or not it's sound money still, I know is still up in the air. I haven't really made a decision, but I get it. I'm starting to understand the use case for it. I'm starting to understand its advantages over gold, um, but also its uh, disadvantages uh, against gold. It makes a little bit of sense to me now in a way that it didn't. However, uh, gold is still like my primary, uh, gold and silver, gold and silver miners, mm -hmm. really where I want to be. Obviously, owning physical first is a number one. But I think Larry makes a very good case. And I think that he's... He, if you go back and listen to the interview you did with him, he makes a measured case for it, which I think is 
important. You know, Larry's not an idiot. Larry's a smart fucking dude, all right? You know, he he makes a measured, cautious case for it, which I respect. You know, I respect that a lot more than Michael Saylor telling people to go out and mortgage their house to buy Bitcoin. And regardless of whether or not Saylor turns out to be right, say he turns out to be the biggest genius of our generation, right? And he's the first guy to be worth $100 trillion because of his foresight here and how early and on the adoption curve he is, et cetera, right? That still won't justify making a statement like that. He's still an ass in my mind for suggesting that people do that. It's an irresponsible thing to do. And frankly, I think it's pushy. I don't tell people what to invest in and I don't tell people how to manage their money. I talk about how I manage mine and, and, and what I'm thinking. You know, it's up to everybody else to make their decision. So I, I just think he's an ass regardless. Um, I think that Larry approaches it the right way. And he has worked through a lot of it. He's worked through a lot of the concerns that many, uh, and, and look, he's an Austrian guy. He's a sound money guy, right? So it's not like he's got this super low bar. He's not some guy that you drag in off the Wall Street bets message board who's been buying shares of AMC for the last two years and say, hey, I got the next 100x for you. And that's all they need to hear. You know, he's a thoughtful individual. Um, and so I take what he has to say very seriously. And I don't know if it's just because I'm ready to hear it now in a way that I wasn't, or if it's because of how he put it or both. But I am going to read the Bitcoin standard. I'm interested now in a way that I haven't been. Um, but again, you know, I'm not a 50-50 guy like he is, 50% Bitcoin, 50%. Um, I, don't, he's, I don't think he is even that. It, he said it makes his, up, I think he said in his it, PA he's 50-50. 15. I think he's 85-15, oh, yeah. I thought if he said if 50, I'm not mistaken. 50, yeah, but even that is too too risky for me. You mm. know, I just wrote a um, a portfolio update basically for my, uh, for my paid subscribers, and I'm going to read it to you because uh, it's been out for a couple of days. Um, and I just wrote, look, you know, first things first, I just want people to know that I think Bitcoin is 100% pure risk. Um, and uh, I wouldn't put anything into it that I'm, you know, not prepared to lose 100% of. It It trades like a risk asset, mm -hmm. right? It, it goes up when the liquidity fire hose is on and it goes down when the liquidity fire hose turns off. Um, gold kind of does the same thing, actually. Gold's kind of been trading... Uh, the same way it, it didn't it didn't rise when gold went up after the fed started qe so it trades a little bit differently um but it's not as um it's it's way 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 more volatile than gold and so you just kind of have to understand that it's so early on in the adoption curve and it's so different in the, in the sense that the supply can't be altered and it's brand new and it's you know there's all these open-ended questions about it that it's going to do some funky shit. The question is whether or not over the course of 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whatever, that starts to smooth out and make sense, um, which is something I'm open to. Because, you know, I used to say Bitcoin addresses the right problem, but it's the wrong solution. Um, and, and I'm not sure that it's not part of uh, a solution to the problem. Uh, well, I just, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, hate it or love it. I know a good part of our audience um, hates it, doesn't want to hear anything about it. There's others that might be open to it. 
And I try to take a stance of, I want to learn as much about, about these different asset classes as I can, because I want to be able to challenge something that I, or, or, or let's say, be able to change my mind on something. If I, yes. if I used to hate it and I, I'm presented with new information, I want to be able to, um, to be that flexible. I don't want to be that rigid in my thinking. I want right, to be, right. I want to be exposed to these new ideas and I want to hopefully help expose the audience to some ideas or, or not even ideas, but maybe different ways of thinking about an asset class. That doesn't mean I don't still love gold, gold miners, um, silver, any of the, the EV metals, base metals, whatever it is, I'm still going to, you know, have that as my base case, because I don't think that, you know, energy need is going away. I don't think that energy right. production is is going down anytime soon. Um, or, or the need for, let's say, cleaner energy, things like that. But at the same time, I don't want to, let's say, necessarily miss the boat on some, some, you know, reasonably valuable asset or or arguably valuable asset that has created a lot of value for a lot of people just because right. i i hated it and um i think that's an interesting point that you're you're in some ways kind of changing your mind about how you see that i'm not changing my mind because i i I've, I've always been open to hearing the case for it it's mm -hmm. not like i've shut down you know people's arguments about it uh, I what I know is I cannot stand, I cannot stomach the people that promote it. Mm -hmm. I can't stand the influencers. I can't stand, you know, I I can't like I watch somebody like Max Kaiser and how he behaves mm -hmm. at a at a conference on stage and it's just reprehensible. And I know he's worth a trillion dollars and he got in early. There's no amount of money in my mind that makes acting like that. Uh, acceptable it just just my personal opinion on like ethics and like you know how people should carry themselves in a social setting and the people that i would surround myself with personally that's not going to be the same as everybody else just my personal opinion i can't listen to a guy like you know pompliana i just can't do it you know i can't i can't stomach it i can't he just put out a thing last night oh i'm sorry i was pumping ftx you know, I'm, I'm going to remove all my sponsors from my podcast now. It's like, all right, man, too little, too late. But I can't, I don't know. I can't tolerate that. Maybe it's just my experience as a short seller busting frauds for a living and, you know, penny stock garbage and just seeing the way these promoters act. But I find that, you know, I find the promotional nature of it just reprehensible, you know, which is something that Larry talks about, right? He says that, like, he thought it was a promote at first. The, the thing is, when you understand it, you understand that Bitcoin just stands alone on its own. It is what it is, regardless of whether or not anybody says anything about it. You know, the protocol is the protocol at the end of the day. Um, you know, the, the, so, you know, I think there is a sea of toxic waste uh, surrounding Bitcoin, an ocean of toxic waste. And I think all of it needs to go away. And some of it, you know, has been carried out in 2022. And I think more of it will get carried out in 2023. But if you can kind of compartmentalize it and kind of put Bitcoin on its own, and that's why I'm interested in reading the Bitcoin standard. Um, 
you know, you might be able to look at it a little bit differently. You know, that kind of stuff is a turnoff. It's hard to see through. It's, uh, you know, I'm a skeptic by nature, but I, I have always said about Bitcoin and I'll always say about any investment that I'm open to hearing both sides of the story. It's only once you have a full, you know, you have to leave ego out of it. You need to be able to have a comprehensive understanding of anything in order to make an investment decision on it, which means bring me the world's smartest bear and bring me the world's smartest bull and let me hear what both of them have to say. And I want to hear everything. I want to hear the comprehensive argument from both of them, you know. <clears throat> and for Bitcoin, for me, it's kind of been frustrating in the sense that it's not going away. And I feel as though there are people smarter than me that understand it in a way that I don't. And that is a frustrating endeavor and has motivated me to want to understand it further um, because I know I'm not the smartest person in the world. So what I'll say is I continue to approach it with an open mind. You know, I haven't really made any substantial changes as to, um, you know, how much I'm buying or anything like that, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in reading more about it. Um, and I'm just, I don't know, uh, you know, I continue to have an open mind about it, but I'm still, you know, first and foremost, and I think I'm always going to be, you know, a, a gold investor. I mean, you don't replace 5,000 years of history as an economic instrument, um, overnight, but do I think that there may be a case for both? Maybe, you know, if you gave me a million dollars tomorrow and you said I had to invest it in either gold miners or Bitcoin, the answer would be gold miners, and I wouldn't even think about it. You know, actually, silver miners, if you would let me, <laughs> but um, I wouldn't even think about it. Mm -hmm. So, but I will say that, you know, once you differentiate Bitcoin from the rest of crypto, because um, Bitcoin gave birth to an entire industry of toxic waste, an entire industry of nothing. You know, there, there is all of these other altcoins and stable coins and uh, the companies that, you know, Binance and FTX. And I mean, it, none of it is necessary for, for Bitcoin to be successful. None of it. The, enti the, the entire crypto industry isn't necessary. Bitcoin in and of itself is really all Bitcoin needs. The Bitcoin protocol is all that Bitcoin needs. So there's a very pure aspect to it that it's tough to kind of wrap your head around with all this other noise that's going on. Um, you know, having said that, I'm not sure how it'll react if the Fed decides they want to, you know, look, if the Fed says they're going to start cutting rates, I think gold's going to go to 2,500. You know, I think gold, I think, I think we will see gold go up $500 an ounce at some point in two days. That, that's my prediction. I think once the Fed starts to make a pivot, I think we will see a move in gold, the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, and I've been saying that I, I wrote an article about it uh, on my blog. I think that gold's heyday is coming. Starting to see it kind of bubble under the surface now, aren't we, Tom? Like th there's been some interesting strength in gold here over the last uh, maybe month. It was up, you know, up $40 an ounce just over the last two days. Mm -hmm. um, and we're really, we're still in this hiking cycle. Right. We're, we're still in cash. Kari was out this morning. He said we're going to, you know, 540 basis points. Right. So why is gold reacting like that? This is just this is the horse at the gate right now. Just kind of like 
fucking amped up on amphetamines, you know, just waiting, waiting for that gate to open. That's what I think these little bursts higher in gold are now. Uh, this is people starting to think about the idea, you know, starting to think about thinking about the idea mm-hmm. of what's going to happen when the Fed pivots. Never mind the case if the Fed loses control. I mean, we go to yield curve control, forget it. You know, we go to yield curve control, gold's over $3,000 an ounce. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that, that that's a, it's a total loss of control if that happens. All right. But let's just talk about, you know, let's just talk about pausing rate hikes. Right. Okay. Well, what happens then? Well, the, you know, maybe we see hundred, $150 an ounce, whatever, you know, then let's talk about easing. Oh, okay. Well then, you know, maybe good for another hundred, $150 an ounce. And let's talk about, you know, turning the QE spigot back on and bond buying. Oh, all right. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you could take those kind of scenarios that seem like they could definitely happen and, and start to work your way up the spectrum of things that are a little bit less likely to happen, but still could very well happen, like yield curve control, like, you know, foreign adversaries challenging the dollar's reserve currency, somebody like China. Hey, I said a year and a half ago before the whole Russia war even started, before anybody was even talking about it, that China's going to back their currency with gold. I'm standing by it. I'm standing by the fact that they're going to back the digital yuan with gold. I think I'm right. I think we're seeing Russia now basically, in essence, create petrogold, right? They're they're only accepting gold for their oil. Or it's another step closer. And at some point, man, you take a situation like that where the reserve status of the U.S. dollar gets called into question in a way that's undeniably, you know, that we have to face, right? We, we, we can't financially engineer our way out of or you see something like, you know, the Fed go to yield curve control or emergency 200 basis point rate cuts. Uh, you know, that horse that's hopped up on amphetamines uh, is going to run the fucking quarter mile at Santa Anita in, uh, you know, half of a second, you know, and break the, break the world record by a, uh, by a factor of a thousand. Um, and I think it's possible. You know, as hate to keep bringing up Larry Lepard, I mean, I don't hate it. I love the guy, but I was just listening to him this morning, you know, he makes the case that you know the government needs to suppress the price of gold and silver, uh, specifically to kind of prevent this stuff. You know, you have a hundred to one claims on gold and silver. He's guessing. Let's just say that's the truth. Um, you know, it's going to be a fight to kind of keep the price down. At some point, international markets, uh, you know, are just going to make the call for us. You know, it's just uh, when the rest of the world is transacting gold for the equivalent of. an ounce in U.S. dollar terms, Uh, you know, what are we going to do? Say, no, we're we're pegging it to $2,000 an ounce. Okay, well, well, what do you have to back that up? Well, nothing. You know, we don't have anything. As a matter of fact, we don't even have the gold we say we have. So we'll lose control at some point. So I feel great owning gold and gold miners. We talk about it every time we talk. There will be a spot where Gold and silver miners, in my opinion, become nationalized uh, because it will be the only sound money. So when you get your 25, your 50, your 100x, you can make the life-changing amount of money. Thinking about, start thinking about ways to either move it, move that money elsewhere. Just think about the risk of those companies being nationalized because you will not be compensated fairly when that happens. Um, Just another thing to keep in mind, whatever, five years, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, who knows? But these are the things that my paranoid brain thinks of. Well, they're, they're all important things to keep in mind. Um, as I think 
you know, all these conversations are exposing ourselves, like I said, to, to new ideas and thinking about the, the near term and longer term, um, effects and, and ramifications of these changes in the world. Um, but Chris, I think that's a, a good, good spot to wrap up today's conversation. I know we, we touched on a lot here and, uh, I hope, I hope, uh, everybody enjoyed it. Let us know. Um, Can I interrupt you? Of course. Do you have 10 more minutes? Yep. Okay. Cause I, I just want to talk about the vaccine thing that we were talking about before we got on mm-hmm. and we, we didn't get a chance to cover. And, and I know this is not gold or finance related, but we were having a good conversation about it. And I, and I just want to bring it up because I don't do these podcasts often and I'm not going to be doing one of my own, but I, I just want to say about the whole vaccine thing, you know, you were talking about you're going to have to cross the border soon. And you're nervous about whether or not you're going to get held up at the border because you're still unvaccinated. And, you know, I was saying to you that, you know, I had to get vaccinated to travel, but I went with the conventional Johnson and Johnson vaccine instead of the mRNA vaccine on purpose, specifically because I didn't really want any anything new going into my body, with the exception of the virus, right, which is already new. Um, I, I just, I just want to say, the evidence that is coming out that there is a heightened risk of myocarditis associated with these vaccines that is not present in a natural uh, COVID infection, right? In other words, uh, above the benchmark, as you would say in in finance terms, right? Beating the S&P average, uh, these incidences that we're starting to see in vaccinated people. And these, you know, ongoing incidents of people tragically having these cardiac incidents, um, the data is starting to, you know, I'm not talking shit. I'm talking about, you know, peer-reviewed studies. Um, Peter McCullough brought up, I I forget the citation, but the one peer-reviewed study that has in fact come out and shown uh, that males, I think between 18 and 36, have an increased prevalence of myocarditis, pericarditis in uh, in vaccinated people above people that are naturally infected by COVID, I think needs to be paid very close attention to. And I'm sure many of your listeners already are on top of this. Um, I don't wanna tell anybody what to do or what not to do, but I, what I would say is if that people are listening and they're skeptics by nature, um, and we're all kind of on the same page here in terms of limited government and looking out for yourselves, looking out for your families, looking out for your communities. Uh, I feel like this stuff needs to be looked at very closely. Um, I'm happy that Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, these guys are back on Twitter. We need to hear from these people. Um, But, uh, you know, I bring it up, obviously, because a couple of days ago, the gentleman on the Buffalo Bills collapsed on the field and and I haven't said anything about that having to do with the vaccine or not. He had a cardiac arrest. It's pretty well accepted at this point. You know, the, some people are arguing this uh, commotio uh, cardis or whatever it's called, where, you know, people that take a chest impact uh, wind up having a cardiac event. Other people have come out and said, you know, 
this may have had something to do with the vaccine. You have all, you know, McCullough came out yesterday and said all things need to be considered. We can't take anything off the table, which of course is the actual scientific way to look at it, right? Let's start some deductive reasoning here. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it was because of the vaccine or not because of the vaccine. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. What I am saying, though, is that I think people need to start paying attention very closely uh, to this stuff, because uh, this is another thing, too, that, you know, I think of it from an investing perspective, right? It's like, well, all right, you know, what happens to Moderna if it if we start finding out some things that we don't want to know? Right. That's one way to think about it. But the, I also think about it like, you know, as a potential human rights violation, as a potential, you know, there's all different ways to look at it. And I don't want to opine on it too much. I'm not super well-versed in it. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is uh, I really feel like we have to keep a very, very, very sharp focus on this. I feel like, you know, because the data that's come out, the peer-reviewed data that, that somebody like McCullough cites, and I had Peter McCullough on my podcast uh, a week or two ago, <laughs> it's all out there, right? Like he's citing stuff from scientific journals. Well, he's the most that's published, most published doctor uh, in the world in his field, right? Yes, yes. And he, he cites publicly available information. Like on the podcast I did with him, he talks about, you know, the stuff that you can find on the FAERS system, which is the uh, vaccine adverse events uh, reporting system. And he talks about things that you can find on PubMed. And he talks about um, scholarly uh, peer reviewed articles that are in scholarly journals. Right. So, Tom, these are all things that can be found uh, within the public domain. You know, it, it shall come as no surprise to your listeners, I'm certain, but I'm going to say it anyways, that while they're out there in the public domain, they are not reported on by the mainstream media. And, and not unlike, the reason I'm bringing it up is because, you know, it, it dovetails from the idea of thinking from yourself, thinking for yourself when it comes to investing, right? Like a lot of people are sound money people because they realize we're playing in a system that's unsustainable, right? So whether you duck in and out of the system and you make money, like we we're talking about earlier, based on what the Fed does and doesn't do. That's one thing. But at the end of the day, I think we all know that the, that the whole thing isn't sustainable forever. Um, and, and so, you know, <clears throat> nobody on CNBC is telling us that. that. That would be inconvenient for them to mention on power lunch. That would fuck their day up, right? <laughs> Similarly, nobody is mentioning this stuff when it comes to um, COVID and it comes to the vaccine. And what do we know already, right? We know that if you questioned the origins of the virus from the get-go, you were labeled a conspiracy theorist, you were labeled a kook, you were labeled insane, you were banned from social media, and it turns out, oh, you were right, okay? Senate reports come out. It's pretty widely accepted at this point that the fucking thing came out of a lab, okay? So check one for conspiracy theory coming to conspiracy fact, <laughs> right? We saw the same thing with the Biden laptop, right? New York Post was got banned off Twitter. They pulled it down off Facebook. The intelligence agencies were telling people to, to remove this stuff from the public discourse. I mean, meanwhile, they're out there talking about, you know, Russian election interference. But really, to me, that kind of seems like election interference, removing a massive story about the incoming president's relationships, business relationships with China. That's a that's a pretty big deal. Right. So mm -hmm. what we found out then was all those conspiracy theorists that said, Oh, it wasn't Russian information. All this stuff looks legit. They're also conspiracy fact now, right? Well, mm -hmm. the gold bugs, 
are conspiracy theorists? Will they be proven to be conspiracy fact at some point? Probably. And now all of a sudden we have the vaccine question. It's up in the air now. It's, it's in that gray zone that like the Biden laptop was in a year ago before everybody just, you know, before the main newspapers wrote on page 12, Tom, oh yeah, by the way, it was real, mm-hmm. right? The vaccine question's now in this gray zone. And I would just urge people to try to get both sides of the story on that and make up their minds on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, for I me, said, you know, Chris, I, I said the last ahead. time I was on with you or two times ago when I was on with you, I said to you, what are we going to find out? What else are we going to find out was true that we were told was false, mm-hmm. you know, about this pandemic, not just the vaccine, but, you know, what else are we going to find out, right? I mean, if I had told you two years ago that that the NIH funded the EcoHealth Alliance, who was performing gain-of-function research, which very likely created this thing, and essentially it's a product of the United States, one way or another, partially our money. I mean, if I had told you that two years ago on the onset of this thing, you'd be looking at things a lot differently, right? Like, so what are we going to know two years from now that today, you know, is kind of on the fence? Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's, I think it's important. I know it's off topic and I know I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I think it's important enough just to mention well, you know, you you and I were kind of talking about this before um, before we started, and you and you and Dave Collum, who's another awesome previous guest of the show, um, him him or you guys had the discussion, um, and and he was kind of mentioning that, you know, we're in this age that that I have come to call the the age of unaccountability. So there's there's two pieces to what Collum was saying is that. You know, you can't, it's almost seems like you can't trust anything now. And, you know, on the other side of not being able to trust, um, to trust all of these different, um, let's say narratives on the other side of that, there's no, there's no accountability for any of it either. There's, and, there's zero accountability. And and know? I think that that, that is, is starting, whether people are aware of it or not, that's starting to, um, wear on people that's starting to well, create because, distrust because, in people and and because it's the money's a, already been made right tom mm-hmm. the, the check's the, already the been cashed and and that's the, the thing like been cash right like for for myself this whole covid thing i i've i've stayed uh, you know tried to stay away from discussing it um people's choices are what they are um i i respect your choice i respect anybody else's choice because that's your your life and everybody's going to do what they think is, is right for them. Right. Um, and I think that's important. Um, however, having these ideas jammed down your throat, as, as you've said before, makes it, it had the same effect on me and that made me very suspicious. Um, and I, I don't think that this put anybody in an easy situation but at the same time, we we touched on this earlier about you know being able to hold hopefully hold two ideas in your head, hear the 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 right. bull case, the bear case, and make up your mind from there. Um, you know me Tom, being I, I a was pretty rooting, I was rooting for the vaccines before mm-hmm. they came out. You know, as a matter of fact, if you go back and listen to some of the stuff that I was recording in 2020, everybody was saying it was an 18 to 24 month timeline before we would get a vaccine. 
-hmm. And what I was saying was I thought we would get it in eight to 12 months because the phrase I kept using was we have all the torque of the entire scientific community working on one problem right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't go into it anti-vaxxer, you know, I was never like an anti-vaxxer, you know, with, with any of it. Like I, I don't, you know, and if you are, that's fine. I don't care. I'm like you, you know, I just want you to do what you think is best for you and your family, et cetera. Um, with a, with a hands-off, with a hands-off government type attitude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't come into it with any preconceived notions about vaccines. It's, again, I was rooting for a treatment. I was rooting for a vaccine when they, when they happened, when they, when the vaccines finally came out and we started getting the initial you know, 98, 95% efficacy headlines. I remember them crossing the wires and breathing this sigh of relief. Like, all right, you know, I, I, my red flag started to go up when I saw how they were being pushed. That's what was alarming to me. It wasn't, you know, sure. At first, you know, you notice the MRNA thing. It was enough to put me off of getting the MRNA vaccine. I'm not really interested in being the first person to try something. Maybe it's just me. You know, I wasn't interested in getting vaccinated at all. I spoke to my doctor. My doctor is a free thinker and a smart guy. And he said, look, your age, the shape you're in, you don't need it. Go back mm-hmm. to daily life. That's what my doctor said. And you know what? That's what I did in April or you know May of 2020. I just said, fuck it. I went back to training jujitsu. I went back to doing all the things I was doing, you know, and I, and I felt comfortable with that. Now, <clears throat> So the only reason I wound up getting vaccinated is I had to travel. Mm-hmm. I had to fly across the country. I wasn't going to drive from Pennsylvania to San Francisco. And so I got it so I could travel. Fine. But, you know, when I saw how it was being pushed, that's when I started to get alarmed. Okay, the vaccines are here. You know, good. But what else was I reading? I was reading that, you know, natural immunity was more robust than the vaccines. And look, once you got it, right, what were all these other countries doing? They were talking about herd immunity. The natural immunity that you got from having COVID combined with vaccines, you know, would be a way to reach herd immunity. Now, when the CDC started to change definitions on their website of what herd immunity was, to remove the idea of natural immunity and say it only comes from vaccination. Well, holy shit. And to keep moving that bar too, right? Holy shit, Tom. That sets off some fucking red flag detectors, right? When I see billboards and the sides of buses painted and endless television commercials to, you know, get vaccinated, it's the only way to return to regular life when the idea of natural immunity wasn't even being talked about, wasn't even being talked about, right? That set off some red flags. Okay, this is weird. How come we're not talking about natural immunity too, right? And then on top of that, you can't come back to your job. You can't go out of the house. You can't do this. You can't do that. We should throw the unvaccinated in jail. Sean Penn, like I'm gonna fucking listen to Sean Penn to make my life decisions, give me a fucking break. I mean, first off, the gall of these people, right? Who are you? Uh, You're an actor, okay? You've been an actor for 30 years. You're a famous actor. You know, that doesn't give you 
any type of qualification to opine on anything to anyone, except maybe how to act. If you're a good actor, go teach an acting class. I got to listen to Sean Penn say, if you're not vaccinated, you should go to jail. I got to watch fucking airline pilots, okay, who are making personal decisions not to get vaccinated, get fired from their jobs. That's despicable. Mm-hmm. That's disgraceful. Okay, so that stuff put me over the edge. Maybe this isn't about the vaccines. Maybe there's something else going on. And it was only after Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson had run through billions of dollars worth of these vaccines. And, oh, all of a sudden, I remember natural immunity came up late last year. Fauci said something. Oh, yeah, natural immunity is good, too. Ah. How come you hadn't said anything about that over the last two years, fuckface? Hasn't changed. <laughs> Seriously, though. Absolutely. Why are, you, why are you only acknowledging it now? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I didn't come into this, Mr. Anti-Vaccine. But the government sure as shit did enough to freak me out about it. And then what are the facts, Tom? The facts are the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was pulled off the market because of blood clots. End of story. They pulled it off the market. What did my doctor say to me in April of 2020 when I called him? He said, we just don't have the long-term safety data, so it's not worth it. And what was everybody in the media and on television and all these government organizations, what were they saying? Oh, it's perfectly safe. It's perfectly safe. And if you question the safety, you're a conspiracy theorist. And what did it turn out to be? Well, it turned out to be a whole lot of groupthink, as McCullough said on my podcast, right? You have one doctor tells the other, tells the other, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. This guy goes on TV, that guy goes on TV, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. Yay this, yay that, yay Johnson & Johnson. Month later, Johnson & Johnson, pull it off the market. Well, those are two completely different scenarios, aren't they, Tom? There's a Mm -hmm. big fucking difference between take this, it's 100% safe, or even take this or you will lose your fucking job. There's a big difference between that. And by the way, this shouldn't be on the market anymore because of blood clots. Oh, okay. So the same thing that you're pulling off the market now is the thing that you forced on people. Well, that's a little fucked up. So now the question is, as studies start to trickle in about the mRNA vaccines, what are we going to find out? Well, we're already finding out in irrefutable, peer-reviewed documents, studies, that prevalences of myocarditis are higher for people that are vaccinated than people that get COVID naturally. Mm-hmm. Well, that should set off an alarm bell, right? McCullough says, hey, they're finding this messenger RNA that's carrying the virus. It's sticking around a little bit longer in people than they thought it would. They're finding it in people's lymph nodes. I asked McCullough, what do you know about that? What does that mean? Well, we don't know because we don't really know anything about it. We don't, we don't know. know it, we don't know yet, right? We don't yeah, know. We, what don't, that... we don't know if it's cancerous. We don't know if it's not cancerous. Mm-hmm. We don't really know. Oh, okay. Well, good thing we got a billion people walking around with this shit in them now. And I'm not saying this is a worst case scenario. I'm not Mr. Uh, this is eugenics. 
all I'm saying is things are not what they seem to be a year ago, two years ago. And that I would, I would just look very carefully and very closely at it, which I'm sure your listeners have already, but I just, I wanted to rant about it over the last couple of days and you are the unfortunate person to interview me <laughs> first. So there it is. Well, you know, I think, I think that brings up a bigger point, Chris, and that's just the, let's say the, the social credibility that the authorities have used up by, you know, pushing that narrative so hard. And I don't, what do you think the sense of, or, or, or the, what is your sense of how people are going to react to the next, you know, big panic moment that the authorities want to push on everybody to, to, to really have another, let's say unified movement against something I think that that's really going to put a lot of distrust in a lot of people and that has hurt their credibility. Um, I don't think that that's a good thing to be, to have hurt your own credibility. And I wonder what people's reactions, what the mainstream people's reactions are going to be if, and when something like this happens again, whether it be, the next war, well, a financial what collapse, has, whatever it is. What, is. what has China showed us over the last month or two? China has showed us you can only push the people so far. Mm -hmm. Because there's the unfortunate reality that the, the bureaucrats in Beijing are outnumbered. Like, you know, 30 billion to six. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so when people started to protest the lockdowns, what did the government do? They threw their hands up in the air, Tom, and they said, all right, fuck it. Time for the whole country to get COVID. You know, kind of kind of funny, right? I, I read this morning, 70% of Shanghai has COVID right now, right? F far cry from the COVID zero policy of the last three years. Then you think about the money and the time and the resources. You know, mm -hmm. if, that was, if that was the point of the COVID zero policy, if it wasn't just to condition the people to lock down when the government says so, but the people can only take so much, you know, so that there's a line that you can push people to. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like Jordan Peterson says, you know, you, you kind of, you edge them in, in that direction, one millimeter at a time, you know, you, you just you abscond with a, a few more civil rights and you take a little bit more liberty each time. But eventually you, you reach a point where the public just says enough. And that's what happened in China. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what it does for credibility. I, I think it damages credibility significantly. I, th I think that, you know, I think it could wind up doing significant harm because, you know, wh what's to say that what's to say that we don't have an Ebola outbreak in the country at some point? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying this will happen. But say in 2030, there's an Ebola outbreak and a company comes up with an Ebola vaccine that works and literally will, you know, save everybody. Run the playbook gonna, back. People are going to point back to 2020 and say, here's what you told us and here's what happened. Right. So that kind of stuff is, uh, I don't know, you know, that's, we could be paying for it for a while to come.
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what what point of distrust the government has to hit with people. I mean, I don't think you know the people are close to revolting in the U.S. or anything like that. But I just think it's it's a very damaging blow um, for the credibility of of government institutions if 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 the data continues to come out and surprise us with these um, negative surprises instead of positive surprises. Uh, if we continue to get negative news that we didn't anticipate, um, it'll be very damaging, and it'll speak to the carelessness and the groupthink of not only the government organizations that took part in this, but also the doctors. And just another, you know, in the financial world, there's all these moments where we have where we're so thankful that we think for ourselves. You know, that's that's what makes a great investor is being a contrarian, you know, it's, it's having the ability to look at both sides of the story and realize when, you know, the herd is on the wrong side. Um, And so that, that's what creates like asymmetric opportunities when it comes to investing. Well, you know, you got to take that thought process out and, and apply it to your personal health and your community and your family and, you know, some a lot of times the herd is right. You know, mm-hmm. does that does everybody, you know, does everybody love having a great holiday season? Yeah, you know, it's great. Everybody gets together. Everybody gives presents. You're with your loved ones. You focus on the things that are important. You know, the nectar of life, the things that people want, the love, the safety, the security, the relationships. So it's okay to like, you know, go with the herd a lot of times. But sometimes you don't want to run with the herd. Sometimes it'll be in your, your family, your community's best interest to think for yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, financially, that's that's how you create prosperity. That's why I always liked Chris Martinson's Peak Prosperity. I always liked the name of that website, you know, because that's what it's about. It's about it's about finding peak prosperity. Mm-hmm. It's about you know e- even when you're running against the herd. And you know, I think this this COVID situation is. Uh, We'll exemplify that again. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. That's why I love your podcast. You got all these people. Some of them I think are wrong. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'm wrong. You know, I'm wrong all the time, dude. You know, but like, I'm not afraid to talk about shit. I'm not afraid to hash it out. I'm mm-hmm. not afraid to have the Socratic dialogue, to ask the questions, to tell you, I don't know it. You know, th- there's no part about me that had a second thought to say, oh, I'm thinking about Bitcoin now in a way that I wasn't thinking about it before when I know your audience, most of your audience hates Bitcoin. And I know a lot of people that follow me hate Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but whatever, you know, I'm committed to trying to figure out the peak prosperity, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's <laughs> I wanna, an awesome I want to be, I want to be standing when the, when the ashes uh, are, 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 are all around, you know, I want to be the, the lone survivor. What's Will Smith in the movie? I am legend. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's what I want to be. I want to be the last fucking guy with my dog and my shotgun. There, <laughs> yeah. you know? I'm not interested in what anybody else thinks. And if you, if you're afraid to talk about things or say that your opinion may have changed, if the facts change, or if you learn new things and you're just doing life wrong, you know, growth, I was not to get too philosophical here and I'm going to wrap it up. But growth is what it's all about, man. Mm-hmm. When you are, when you have any kind of relationship, a friendship, you know, a, a family relationship, an intimate relationship, it's all about growing together. Tom, your relationship as a podcaster who I've never met 
and me, you know, pacing around my 400 square foot studio <laughs> apartment right now, we're, we're together here because mm -hmm. we want to grow, you know, we want to, we want to grow our understanding of, of best practices of, you know, what's best for us and the people we love. Mm -hmm. That's what life's about, man. It's about growth. Growth comes from dialogue. Growth comes from open discussion. Growth comes from dropping the ego. And so, you know, that's, that's the path to the promised land, brother. We're, hopefully we're all walking it together. Yeah. I love it, Chris. And, and, you know, that's actually something that, um, I was thinking as, as you're talking about that, you know, in, in some ways I feel like you and I have a responsibility to talk about these ideas, to present these ideas in a fair and balanced way. And, you know, hell I've been wrong plenty. You just admitted you've been wrong plenty, but you know, in, in some way you and I have a responsibility to, to talk about these things, to think about these things, to expose our audience to these different ideas, because as you say, it's, it's all about growth. It's all about trying to find that peak prosperity. And as you said, trying to think differently. Um, it's, it's funny you brought that up. I just started reading um, this book called The Misbehavior of Markets, A Fractal View of Financial Turbulence uh, by Benoit M Mandelbrot. And oh, Mandelbrot. It, uh, yeah, he was the guy that uh, discovered fractals. Yeah. And, and so they, I just, just started reading it, got through maybe the first two chapters here and they really start the book off by saying about how, you know, unique of a thinker he was, uh, even his, his father, I believe, um, was in, in a, a POW camp and they let them all out. They were everybody said, or whoever had let all these POWs out said oh yeah go down the road it's it won't be a problem you're free to go and then they all got mowed down by some artillery fire or something like that while being the the unique thinker that his father was he said well something doesn't feel right about this i'm going to go off by myself into the woods and was one of the only people that ended up surviving right um you know crazy example but again it's it's not necessarily thinking everybody else is wrong and I'm going to be right just because I'm going against the grain. It's, you know, exploring these different ideas, seeing what feels right. And in a lot of ways, trusting your gut. I mean, for myself, trust, I know, I know trust that, that your, trust your intuitions to guide your convictions. Yeah. And, and for myself, you know, that's taken years to figure out to, to understand you know, what that means, how to, how to trust myself. And the more it goes on, the, I think the better you get it, the, the better sense you get it, um, for figuring out where you ought to be in this world. And, uh, I, I hope, or, or I'm hopeful that you and I, um, have helped anybody in a, in a small way to be able to do that. Well, I know you've helped me, uh, do that, you know, and that's, that's what it's all about. I was just having a talk last night with a friend uh, who is a woman, you know, I can't figure out these guys. Everybody's got a motive. You know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to figure it out. I just said, just trust your gut. Trust your gut. Mm -hmm. When the first, you know, there's a great quote. Maya Angelou says, when somebody shows you who you are, believe them. The When somebody shows you who they are, mm -hmm. believe them the first time. Right. Yeah. Which is like, yeah. if you've got saying one thing, 
when somebody's showing you a little something, a red flag, you know, don't turn your back to it. You know, be be grateful that you recognize it. Be grateful that you, you know, that you see it. And that's it, man. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, and it's, it's that, it's the first kind of forging off the path, you know, and I don't know what age it comes. For me, it was like, I remember being 16 or 17 years old and having a discussion with my mother about George W. Bush and just saying, you know, this guy seems like an idiot. And my mom's like, he is an idiot. And I'm (laughs) like, all right, well, how did he get elected president of the United States? Don't like, isn't that supposed to go to like the smartest person in the world if you're leader of the free world? And she's like, no. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that changes some things. You know, then all of a sudden you're like, all right, well, if maybe I'm smarter than the president then. And if I'm smarter than the president, who else am I smarter than? I'm not smarter than everybody. I'm smarter than some people. Are there going to be things that other people know that I don't? Yes. Are there going to be things that I understand that other people won't? Definitely. So that begets the attitude of just being open to everything and trying to, you know, make those decisions on your own. And what, you know, what's best for me isn't going to be best for you. It's not going to be best for other people, right? Which is where the idea of liberty and the idea of freedom plays such importance, you know, because everybody's different. Everybody has different priorities. Everybody has different ways of thinking. Everybody has different things that they want out of life. So you do what's best for you. And, you know, the, the trick is having that aha moment, you know, when you, when you first nail down something that everybody else couldn't figure out, or you have that, or you eat that first magic mushroom, you know, and like you get some neurons firing in your brain that never fired before. And you say, holy shit. Well, I'm capable of looking at this in a totally different way. You know, it's, uh, you start to break down as Terrence McKenna would say, you start to break down boundaries, you know, like you smoke a joint, you look at your refrigerator completely different than you did five minutes <laughs> earlier before you had smoked a joint, yeah. you know? Well, well I, I mean, I don't know. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to say, you know, I was just saying, you know, why is that? Because, because you're, you know, your body is kind of, uh, you know, your, your mind is, has broken down some of those boundaries. It's just looking at things in a different way than it was five minutes prior. You eat that magic mushroom, the same thing's going to happen. You're going to start to think like Benoit Mandelbrot and less like, you know, Rochelle Walensky or whatever the CDC woman's name is, right? So you have to explore all of those things. You have to explore your, your own consciousness. You have to explore your sovereignty over your own mind. You have to explore the idea of, of ego. You know, all of these things become a, a, a collective kind of like cauldron of variables that, you know, will, will, will guide you all over the path in terms of, you know, the decision making that you make uh, throughout the course of your life. And, and the least consequential of those things, and, and what I would think the least um, intrusive and offensive uh, of those things, because, you know, having a bad, you know, magic mushroom trip is sucks pretty bad, you know, it's pretty offensive, it's pretty harsh, it's pretty volatile. The least volatile, the least harsh, the least intrusive of those things should just be having a conversation. Right. We got two sober individuals on the phone right now. 
having this podcast, having this conversation, you know, anybody that wants to run from the idea of just a discussion, uh, you know, that's, that's a huge wall already right there. You have to at least be willing to listen and be willing to explore different topics. I, I lose you. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Chris. And, you know, it's kind of funny as you you're you're bringing up this idea of like when you smoked a joint you look at your your fridge completely differently um i i went to mexico a couple of couple of weeks ago let's say a month ago now and had an awesome time you know <laughs> got up to some pretty pretty w- wicked adventures rented a motorcycle ripped through the mountains you know had an excellent excellent trip and i got back to, to where I live in, in Western Canada here. And I was like, you know, I looked at it completely differently. I just thought to myself, like the amount of personal responsibility people take for themselves and their lives in this society is a far cry from what I saw in Mexico. You know, there's, there's poor people in Mexico. I've been, I've experienced it time after time. I've been there all kinds of, all kinds of times I've traveled all over the world. I love getting that perspective and it really kind of checked me because, you know, I haven't, I haven't basically traveled for, for two years. That was my first trip um, in two years. And it's, it's interesting to, you know, get that perspective again of just because the traffic light is red doesn't mean you have to sit there, but fucking right. our, fucking our right. society, our society deems it completely unacceptable to to go through that traffic light yet you know if you're in mexico and you take responsibility for yourself and you say well things look safe to me let's go did anybody get hurt absolutely not but we're so conditioned to just eat that shitty narrative in the west that that is constantly jammed down our throats that nobody takes the time to question and uh that's that's one of the best quotes I've heard in a long time. Just because the traffic light is red doesn't mean you have to sit there. And I'm saying it from a very deep uh, understanding of that and the way that that could yeah. be applied a million different ways. But I'm also saying it from the fact that I run red lights all the time. When, when, I, know there's, when, I, when I know there's no traffic camera. No, I'm not even joking. When yeah. I know there's no traffic camera and I'm at a red light and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not fucking sitting there. If I can see both ways and I know there's no train, there's no yeah. car, there's no truck, there's no 18 wheeler, there's no traffic, there's no pedestrians. I'm through the light, <laughs> you know, like, so. And, and again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you're irresponsible towards others, no. towards yourself, anything like that. But it's like, look, the, the only thing keeping you there is a, a little bit of wavelength of light. And how Why? many more seconds and how many more seconds of my life do I have? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's you know? another, that's another uh, rabbit hole. We could definitely go down as, but let me as just say appreciation this about your, for life. Right. Let me just say this about your trip to Mexico. I went and saw the movie, the whale last night. I don't know if you've seen it, no. but it's, it, it is a devastating movie, right? It's a, a exceptionally dramatic and very, very sad movie. And I, you know, I went by myself and I sat in the corner of the theater by myself and the theater was packed. Um, and there came a point in the movie, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes into it, 
where I just said to myself, I have to stop holding back tears. I'm just going to cry mm-hmm. because it's just, it's just brutal. I mean, the movie is devastating. It's just, it's devastating. So the floodgates opened at that point, literally. And I spent the next 45 minutes or next hour just in a crescendo of, of crying by myself in the movie theater all the way up to the very end of the movie, which was like, the, you know, the, the peak sadness <laughs> and like peak, uh, you know, crying. And so I'm sitting there like basically devastated in the movie theater by myself, just absolutely just a mess. I mean, just fucking, and I wasn't making any attempt to like wipe my tears or anything. I just decided I'm just going for it. You know, like, I don't you're, you're going to lead um, by example. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. Cause I, I had, I snuck out as soon as the movie ended. I like ran, I ran out of the theater. Like, Can't let anybody see me like this. But, uh, but what I'll say is when I was walking home, I started to think about all of the important things in my life. Right. As you do when something like you watch a football player drop on the field and you realize that guy's life just changed forever mm-hmm. at this moment. Right. And, and similar to like, when I watched this movie, you realize, Oh my God, you know, it, it makes you confront the idea of death. It makes you confront all these things that you normally wouldn't think about. And as I'm walking home from the movie, my perspective on, you know, my relationships, the time I spend talking to my family, the time I spend doing the things that I enjoy, my, you know, my love of being creative, my love of writing, my, you know, all of these things, just thinking about it so profoundly differently than I was when I walked into the theater where my main goal was to get the snack line to move up. Yeah, hurry up. They didn't have enough fucking people working. I need to get my popcorn. You know, the fucking movie's going to start. Yeah. Right. And so, so I leave this like devastated wreck that is just thinking about, you know, all these profound, deep parts of life that I normally wouldn't be thinking of. And, and why is it? Well, it's because, you know, I tapped into a lot of emotions that normally you just don't tap into. Right. And for me, it was what? I don't know. Confrontation of death, loss of family members, all these themes that played out in this sad movie. Things that you don't think about when all you're thinking about is getting your popcorn. And it just circles back. You know, you go to Mexico and what do you see? Well, it's a reminder that you have a planet of eight billion people all living their life very, very, very differently. Right. And life doesn't start and stop at the McDonald's drive through in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Right. It's the world is very different for a lot of people, which is um, interestingly, one of the themes that kind of made Bitcoin a little bit more interesting uh, for me. But you think about those things and you think about that perspective and you you think about, all right, like, well, what, what changed after I smoked the joint and I was looking at my refrigerator, right? Well, it's like, all right, you know, my brain is just acting a little bit differently. What changed after I ate the, the magic mushroom, right? Like, I don't know. There's, there's, there's neurons firing in places where they weren't firing before. So it's when you start to hit those outer limits, you start to hit the fringe, as my blog is called fringe finance, right? Because it's it's the stuff on the outside, the fringe that, that is sometimes even inaccessible, barely accessible. The emotions, the thoughts, the feelings, the investing perspectives, the life perspectives, you know, you got to 
got to try to get into those things, man, because that's that's what's going to round out a, a larger picture for you. And, and hopefully, like I said, lead you down that path to prosperity. Again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's it's important and it's and it's really humbling to see, you know, different basically these different perspectives, which I think in the end make me feel, you know, the world is going to carry on with or without you. It doesn't matter. You in a lot of ways don't matter. Do your best while you can treat people nicely. And at the end of the day, realize that whatever you think you have achieved, it doesn't really matter. So enjoy it, enjoy it while you can. Um, And you die. And I think, you die tomorrow or i die tomorrow mm-hmm. the day after you're still gonna the mcdonald's down the street is still gonna be serving chicken nuggets for 9.99 yeah you know yep. what i mean there's still gonna be a lady bitching about sweet and sour sauce there's still <laughs> gonna be the fucking war in ukraine there's still gonna be you know the, the stock market there's still gonna be the fed mm-hmm. right so it's like all right people die every day man i mean you see obituaries for famous people. Unfortunately, you have people in your life that die. Mm-hmm. And and you ever try to confront the idea that like, you know, oh man, it'll be devastating when I die. No, it won't. You know, people pretty much, you know, you ever just leave a funeral and be like, all right, well, uh, what are we doing tonight? We're going to go out and watch the NFL game? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. life's pretty much just going to keep going. You know, well, they, so I, I mean, even there was work. a, over the over the weekend here there was a um a really prominent action action sports um personality ken block he he died he was snowmobiling in the mountains and you know just as he's done i think he's a 55 year old guy he's gone snowmobiling his whole life he raced motocross he raced rally cars he was like one of the most important figures in action sports and you know just instantly just Something happened on a snowmobile and now yep. he's gone. And the, that That's touched it. the entire action sports world. He was one of the guys that created DC shoes and he's, you know, taken away from his three kids, his wife, his many companies. And it just goes to show you again that uh, you, unfortunately this, this ride does have an end to it. And, you know, as much as we talk about, investments and money and hating Bitcoin or loving gold or whatever it is at the end of the day, that's means to an end. And there's, there's more to life than, than just that. Right. Well, you gotta, you gotta remember why you want that. You gotta remember why you want the financial security in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, you gotta remember what the point is. The, The point isn't to get money to, make more money and beat the high score. The point is to have security and freedom so that and, you can pr- pursue the things that make you happy and, you know, pr- and, and help the people that you love, you know, that, that, and, that's and, it, hope, and hopefully meaningful relationships and, and meaningful conversations, yes. you know, like, well, that's it. I, that's, that's the nectar. Like that is the nectar, right? Gr- personal growth, growth within other people, these types of conversations, this is it. Like we're, this is life. Mm-hmm. We're doing it right now. Whether I've overdrawn my bank account today or I've got a trillion dollars in the bank, this conversation stays the same, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, 
the idea that, like, for me, when all these people started bringing up the vaccine thing right after this guy collapsed on the field, um, I, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. Not not because I, I think that they're wrong. Same way I didn't like the fact that they were talking about, all right, was it this commotio cordis, the other thing or whatever it is. I didn't like that. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't because I agree or I disagree that that may or may not have been this guy's cause of cardiac arrest. It's because your first thought wasn't immediately to turn around and hug your family Point. or yeah. tell, tell somebody that you love them. You know, that that's the first thing. Look, me and my my best friend, we are rabid, rabid NFL fans. We're in pools. We do fantasy. I mean, we are as involved and engrossed as you can get. You know, it's almost all we talk about. We actually had an interest in the Bills winning that game that night. We were watching the game together. We were, you know, talking to each other all game, texting each other, you know, talking about every play. And when that happened, you know, we both said the same thing, which is, you know, holy shit, I hope they stop this game. Mm -hmm. It really puts things into perspective, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's what it's all about, man. Why do you want the billion dollars to begin with? You know, what's the point of, what's the point of drinking Dom Perignon going down a 14 karat gold plated water slide in Dubai at living in the penthouse apartment of the world's most expensive hotel with your pet tiger. If you don't have a best friend to invite or to, you don't have a person in your life that you love and loves you back, what's mm -hmm. the point? There's no point, you know, and, and people will say, Oh, you know, once I get some money, uh, I know that won't be true. I'll be, I'll be happy. I can be happy with those things. You won't, you won't. <laughs> I've done some pretty cool shit. You know, I'm not rich, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm not extremely wealthy. But well, there's a, can... there's a, there's a certain level of wealth that does create happiness, right? That just gives you enough security to be able to eat. And from exactly. there, from there, it's really negligible. The, the amount of difference that it makes. Um, exactly. If you can pay your, if you can pay your <laughs> bills and you, and you can, you have enough for your family, you know, and you got, you got, you got a house, you got a car, you got what, what you want and you're settled in, you know, at that point it becomes, all right, well, what do I got? 50 million. Okay. Well, what's the difference if I have 50 or a hundred million, what's the difference between a hundred million and a billion, you know, unless you're a psychopath, nothing, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, really, unless you're thinking of, you know, I need to have a super yacht. I need to have 10 mansions. I mean, some people think like that and it's ridiculous. That's, that's trying to address some unmet, need from their childhood that is manifesting in the form of wanting to you know hoard property and material things which is a totally different it's a totally different thing yeah there's um, there, there's the idea of the, the hedonistic treadmill right where you're constantly right. adapting but constantly exactly. adapting to to the the new stimulus whatever you think you know new product is going to bring you happiness that shit's going to wear off right after two weeks you want the next bigger and better thing because because that's how our minds you know evolutionarily i think that's how we're wired and you know we have let's say 200 years of having light and electricity that evolutionary wiring doesn't go away overnight you right. still have the the desire to to need to be bored because 
the the berry tree that you're picking isn't providing enough fruit there there are evolutionary reasons for things that we do things this this the way our minds work um like i said the the hedonistic treadmill you're always going to be constantly searching for more and better more comfort that's that's something another book i recently read that I thought was just awesome was called the comfort crisis. And it really put a lot of data behind some of the ways that I think about the world. I go out of my way to make myself really uncomfortable a lot of the time to, to push my limits, to see where I'm at. You know, I ran well, while I was in Mexico, I went for a run one morning and I said, well, I'm just going to go, you know, I'm a, I'm a big motorcycle racer. So I said, well, I'm going to run over to where I think this motorcycle track is. So it would, it would have been about, um, I, I know it in kilometers, it would have been about eight K each way. So a 16, 16 K run, I thought, Oh, I'll be able to bang that out. You know, a little less than two hours. I'm just going to go for it. Didn't have any breakfast, had a little bit of water, didn't take any, anything with me except for my phone and a pair of shorts. Well, I ended up running a half marathon in Mexico fasted with no water. Just because yeah. I thought, hell yeah, let's push the limit. If I get into trouble, I know I can stop and get some water, whatever I need to do. But, you know, that that shit's important to understand what you're capable of, what your body's capable of, well, and where it, that can it'll take make, you. It'll make all the difference in, you know, stressful scenarios. You'll see, you know, where you stand compared to other people that don't push those limits. And I'm a huge advocate for being comfortable with being uncomfortable, which mm-hmm. is why, you know, I take cold showers and, you know, all day, every day in the, in the middle of winter, I take cold showers. I mean, it's, it's devastating, especially when I, you know, if I go to Montreal, it's even more devastating. <laughs> if I go to, you know, it's crazy because it'll be like, you know, minus five Fahrenheit, you know, and that's cold water, about as cold as water can get without freezing. I mean, uh, and so it's, you know, people that take ice baths, they do it for that reason, right? They, they do it because they want to wake up their vagus nerve. They want to wake up their nervous system, but like they do it because they want to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, because that, you know, look, if, if I go to a jujitsu competition, right. And, and, a, and a guy, you know, has a, has a submission locked in, right. And, you know, it's 30 seconds before I go out and it's, 29 seconds before this guy's muscle cramps and and he lets go of the submission you know who's who's gonna win you know who's gonna take it to the 30 second mark and and not the 29 second mark Mm -hmm. you know i want to be the guy that takes it to the 30 second mark i want to be the guy that you know that has that conditioning right and it's running is a perfect example you know i went out to do the most i had ever run in my life ever up until uh, two months ago was I think 12 miles or actually I did a half marathon. So 13.1 miles. And, uh, and it was pretty devastating on me. Like I run all the time. I've been running since I was 18 You know, I run 30, 35 miles a week. Um, but I just, my body is just not cut out to do more than, you know, 13 miles. Usually I run between seven and 10. I went out to do seven, two months ago. I felt good. And I just said, let's see how far we can take it. You know, I'm not going to go home if I feel comfortable. You know, I want to go home feeling like I worked, 
right? And so I ran 15 miles for the first time in my life. I mean, pretty much couldn't move when I got done, but I did it, you know? And now, okay, now I know I can run 15 miles. I had a, I had a moment with one of my trainers once where I was doing box jumps mm-hmm. and, and the box was laying horizontally on the ground. It was the first time I had ever done box jumps. This was my, uh, my uh, jujitsu and uh, kickboxing coach. So I'm, I'm, I'm jumping on the box, you know, I do 15 reps or whatever, and he turns the box vertical. So it's like twice as high as it was before. And I said to him, Jordan, I can't jump on, you know, there's no way I can jump to the fucking top of that box. I, can't, I just can't do it. And he's like, Chris, he's like, you just got to trust me. I said, a lot of this stuff is mental. I'll never forget. It just, it replays in my mind all the time since then. A lot of this stuff is mental. And I said, all right. And the first jump, I fucking hopped right up on it. I was mm-hmm. like, ah, now I, now I know I can do it. So do I tell myself that all the time? I do. A lot of this stuff's mental, Chris. Am I freezing? Oh, a lot of this stuff is mental. You know, is this guy going to, you know, knock me unconscious? Oh, a lot of this stuff's mental. You know, let's see how far I take it. And let's see how far he takes it. And then when you're standing in line in a Wawa waiting to pay for your coffee, in Wincote, which is on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And the guy in line in front of you has had the worst day of his life and decides to flip out on everybody that's standing in line and on the person behind the counter. And he starts screaming and he starts losing his shit and throwing stuff and knocking over things on the counter. And everybody else in the Wawa runs you just kind of stand there. Okay, I can deal with this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to happen? This guy's going to take a swing at me? Okay. You know, I'm not moving. I'm enjoying where I'm standing. I'm either going to wait till this guy tires himself out. I'll wait till he attacks somebody physically, at which point I'm going to restrain him, or I'll wait till he provokes me. And he didn't do anything. He threw a temper tantrum, threw a bunch of shit, and he left. But everybody else ran from the scene. You know, this guy's crazy. Who knows what he'll do? Now, is that always like the best possible scenario, you know, to like stay there? No, but that's the difference. I fly all the time and all the time I think about, you know, one out of every million flights goes down. Right. And I'm so comfortable with flying. I do it all the time. But I always think while I'm in the air, Eh, maybe. You know, and yep. then I think about, I think about what would I be like if the plane fell out of the sky? If I watched the wing just fall off the plane, what would I be like? And I just know I would feel very calm because you know there's nothing you can do, right? So there's so many situations where panicking makes things worse. If you're in a if you're in a fight, it hypes your adrenaline up, you dump all your energy, you get nothing done, you get your ass kicked. Been there, lived it, done it. Mm-hmm. Going calm, Practiced you have a plan. It. Yeah, you go in calm, you have a plan, different story. Now you're waiting for the other guy to dump his adrenaline. Right? The plane goes down or the plane hits extreme turbulence. People start freaking out, crying. Maybe they make things worse. Maybe you're going to land safely anyways, but the crying and the freaking out exacerbate the problem. You spill your hot coffee on yourself, give you third degree burns <laughs> instead of, you know, you never know. Yeah. 
But in situations where you don't have the control, you know, you just got to stay calm and you just have to be prepared. And how does that, how do you get that preparation from experience? You know, when it comes to things like investing, living through enormous market volatility and crazy situations and, you know, losing your whole bankroll, but then, you know, going up, you know, watching your portfolio 10x in one day, these huge swings and everything in between, you know, and in life, like you're saying, well, you do it by pushing your limits, man, mm-hmm. by making making yourself uncomfortable because you know that if you're in a room with 10 other people, some kind of hunger game shit, and, you know, the, uh, the dark emperor said to you, you got to run 100 miles or everybody you, you love is going to die or something, or who, the last man standing wins here or something, your mindset's going to be a lot different than most other people who are going to quit before they even start. And you're going to be like, yeah, I'll try. I could do it. You know? Yeah. And it's like, like part of the the stoic philosophy is to to practice, um, practice, let's say poverty or practice being uncomfortable practice, you know, the, the thought of death, because at when somebody does die, then you have basically prepared yourself mentally to understand what what you're going to be going through at that point and i think uh, you know right. the, testing yourself and putting yourself in those situations even something as stupid as um you know let's say asking for a discount for a coffee um people you know that makes people really uncomfortable to to do something yeah. as as silly as that and i think it's a great it's a, a great exercise yeah yeah that's a that's Same another thing. good example yeah you know, it's the same thing. Yeah, you get rejected a hundred times. The hundred and first mm-hmm. time you're expecting to get rejected, the woman says yes. Oh, how'd that happen? That that sure yeah. exceeded my expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Tom. I think we've, you know, I think we've solved solved intellectual enough. bullshit at this yeah. point. We've we've solved enough of the world's problems for today, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's time for a beer. <laughs> Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the chat, Chris. This was, uh, you know, a, a lot, a lot different than normal, uh, the, the stuff we normally talk about, but I think it's important. And I, uh, I feel very privileged to be able to, um, have these types of conversations with you. Uh, I, I have conversations like this, you know, off air all the time. And, um, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position to be able to, to speak to awesome, awesome people, um, like yourself. And, uh, I don't take that for granted. Feelings mutual, brother. I'll see you soon. All right, buddy. Thanks, Chris. Take care, man. All right. Take care.